All right, let's, oh, we're going to look at Isaiah 41 today. Plan is to look at the whole thing. Um, and, but I want to actually kind of put it in context a little bit with the whole book and then also this whole section. It's good to be with you again. Um, yeah, it's been a long time. So anyway, but really, obviously, you're in great hands with Andy. So uh, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the many blessings you've given to us. Thank you for this time together. What a blessing it is to be able to open your word, to discuss it, to examine it. We know that when we do this, it's not a merely human thing, that your spirit works through your word. You're, you, you have great promises that attend to the reading and, and study of your word and the meditation on it. And that, that's what we pray for today, that you would uh, work through your word by your spirit to show us our sin and to train us in righteousness, to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive right in. Um, I want to, like I said, set verse or chapter 41 in the context of the, this section, Isaiah 40 to 44, uh, and then also in, this, in the context of the book as a whole. I think that's going to be important to understand what's going on here. Uh, so one, I, there's a quote about that I got from an Old Testament biblical theology about this little section of Isaiah 40 to 44. And what the writer says is this is a veritable Old Testament biblical theology in itself. In other words, that the, the, uh, the theology of the Old Testament is kind of all packed in here. And, and he says it might well be called the Old Testament book of Romans. Now, maybe that's a little bit of a uh, of a stretch, maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but the point that he's making, I think, is one that we will see, that actually the theology of at least the book of Isaiah, if not the whole Old Testament, is really contained in this section. So where are we in terms of all of um, the book and kind of the history of the book? Well, you've just gotten through this very significant section that seems a little strange on the face of it, this section that deals with Hezekiah and the siege that that he uh, that he faces, how he deals with it, and then what the Lord basically says to him at the end of it, which is essentially uh, the Assyrians aren't going to destroy you. They were, they were the ones gathered around uh, Jerusalem, but the Babylonians will at some point, but you're not going to live to see it, and that's good enough for Hezekiah. So he he kind of lives the rest of his life knowing that the exile is coming and it's not going to be an Assyrian exile which throughout some of Isaiah's ministry might have looked plausible because the Assyrians came through the northern kingdom of Israel and took out the northern kingdom already and so you know they were right on the on the doorstep of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah but it's not going to be the Assyrians it's going to be the Babylonians and, and, how, and how are we supposed to live in light of that? How are we supposed to receive comfort in light of that? Well, that's Isaiah 40, this really just amazing chapter. Um, because right after, um, after declaring in, in 39 that there's going to be this coming Babylonian exile, Isaiah 40 begins with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, etc. So what's going to happen on the other side of the Babylonian exile is the Lord's going to restore his people. And why can they count on the Lord doing that? Well, in Isaiah 40, 
you can count on the Lord doing it because he said he's going to do it in his word. This is this famous verse that I think if Dr. Phillips were, were uh, preaching today or were even reading scripture today, he would probably quote it at least once or twice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, in the context of Isaiah 40, what's that saying? I mean, it's, it's rightly applied to just the reading of the Bible, which is how Dr. Phillips applies it. But, but it's, it's a little narrower than that in the context. In the context, he's saying, you can count on the Lord doing this because no matter what happens, the word of the Lord stands forever. So that's part of the comfort. The other part of the comfort in Isaiah 40 is you know there's going to be a restoration because God's the one who says it. And God's greatness is beyond uh, any searching out. And so you get these great images. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket uh, and are accounted as dust on the scales. So all these, uh, all these nations, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or anyone else, the Lord's in comparison with the Lord and his greatness. They're really uh, nothing. They're, they're, they're insignificant. So they can count on the fact that they're going to be destroyed. Now, taking a step back, by the way, I should say this because some of you are, are sort of newer to the class, or at least maybe you've been here for two months, and, but I haven't. So um, the, uh, feel free to ask questions at any time, jump in, push back, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to go, and it's, and it's not going to stop, and that might, that might be not the best. Um, so so in, in the context of the book of Isaiah... This kind of gets at one of the big themes. Actually, the very first time we opened Isaiah in this class to study it, um, what we did is we looked at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. And, and, it, and it raised a very significant question. Because at the beginning of the book, what we see is God's judgment on his people. And in fact, he calls Jerusalem um, a, a prostitute. And then at the end of the book, if you could turn to Isaiah 65, what you see is that now, now he's not only not pronouncing judgment, but actually Jerusalem is this glorious city who is, and the imagery that's given is that she's kind of wedded to God. So, so the question that introduces is how does the, this rebellious, unfaithful city, become this glorious city. And Isaiah sort of tells that story in, in a big picture. And, and you're kind of getting something similar here because how do we move from the Babylonians are going to take over to God's going to restore you? Well, we get there because ultimately at a base level, the most fundamental explanation is God said he would do it and God's more powerful than the nations. But then if you want to get uh, go a level up and say, yeah, but how does he do it? Then chapters 41 and 42 are going to answer that question. And in answering that question, they're actually going to get at these fundamental truths of Old Testament theology. So in 41, the, the, the basic question that's being answered is, how does, so if, God, if God's word is, is always can be counted on and God's power... Is, is just far above any nation or anything like that, how does, how does this lead to the restoration of, of Jerusalem, of God's people? 
And, and the answer given in chapter 41 is the way that this works to accomplish that goal is because God is going to judge all the nations. So salvation or restoration, and this is actually a meta theme of the Bible, God's salvation and God's restoration of his people comes through judgment. It comes through God's judgment um, of his enemies. Now, I just want to pull the thread of this a little bit, because it is such a big theme. Um, in the Bible, you, you, you can't, you never, you never get the salvation of God's people without also being confronted with God's judgment. Even in the preaching of the gospel in, in the New Testament, uh, these two things always go together. Just kind of stick your hand in, in Isaiah 41 and turn with me to a passage in Acts that um, I think is, is very instructive. So this is um, in Acts chapter 10. And uh, let me give you the context a little bit. This is, uh, Peter has just preached to the Gentiles because God told him to. Um, he had this vision that he was supposed to, well, you know, it's a vision of the, of the animals that, that he's supposed to kill and eat that would have been unclean under Jewish law. And, and that's symbolic of his need to go to the Gentiles. And the Lord tells him all that. But, um, but when, Pe and when Peter preaches to the Gentiles in Acts 11, the Lord really opens their eyes. He does pretty amazing things. And Peter tries to explain that, and he explains very specifically what Jesus taught them to preach. And I want to um, pick up in verse 42 of Acts 10. This is Peter telling everybody how Jesus told them to preach. All right, so that's pretty important. Verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, that is Jesus, that he is Jesus in this case, if you go back, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, notice, notice that order in in. When Jesus sat down and taught his disciples what to preach and how to preach, when he gave them a kind of preaching class, what he said is, it's very simple. Here's what you need to do. Proclaim who I am. If you, if you read earlier, Peter tells about how Jesus uh, uh, lived and, and, and died on a cross and was raised to life and ascended into heaven. So the basic truths of the gospel. But then when it comes to kind of application or the implications of what Jesus did and, did and said, implication number one, point one in the sermon application section is he's the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. Now point two is in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that he offers forgiveness of sins. But the order is important is what I'm saying. The order is he's the judge and he offers forgiveness of sins. And that's always what you see in, in the Bible. It's always, this is who Jesus is, and he's the judge. And 
Good news, he offers forgiveness of sins if you come to him in faith. And, and see, Isaiah is doing that exact same thing here. What Isaiah is doing is he's going to say, the, the way in which, um, because you know God can be trusted and he's powerful, so we know that an ultimate sense it's going to happen, but how is it going to happen? How is God going to save his people? Well, he's going to save his people by judging those who are against him. And we'll see in Isaiah 42, this is where it gets really good. In Isaiah 42, we're going to see that he's going to save his people by sending his servant to offer forgiveness of sins. It's exactly the same thing as Acts 10, 42, and 43. Um, we'll get to 40, uh, Isaiah 42 next, next week, Lord willing. But, but right now we're here, and this is, this is Isaiah 41. Or, you could say, this is point one of Peter's preaching lesson. Acts, Acts 10, 42. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a very there's a very upset child out there. Um, usually, usually um, when when I teach Sunday school classes, there's always like a kids class next door that seems like they're having a great time, and it's kind of you know, they're having a better time than we're having. That doesn't sound that way though. Actually, I think we're having a better time than that um, child is having. Okay. Let's go to Isaiah 41. Now that we've said it in context. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what he's going to do is he's going to say, essentially, um, I'm, 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 I'm sending out the message to everybody to the coastlands, to the farthest reaches, to everywhere and everyone. And, and the message is that I'm coming as your judge. Again, it's the, it's the Acts 10.42. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to acknowledge this, whether you try to ignore it, whether you know, no one's ever told it to you before, whatever your situation, the fact is that Jesus Christ is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead, and to him all men must give an account. So, I mean, again, you can ignore that. You can pretend you never heard it. It's going to happen anyway. And that's, that's kind of the force of Isaiah 41. He, he begins by talking to all the coastlands. Um, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So, sorry to interrupt you, everyone in the world, but now it's time to be judged. And, and, you, and you can't, you've got to drop everything and now receive judgment. Now, there is a, there is a, a sort of caveat to this, though, and it's the same logic as Acts 10.43, because the caveat is, everybody's coming in for judgment. It's time you don't have any choice. It's, it's time for judgment from the Lord. But there is, a, there is a, an exception, if you will, not, not to the judgment, but to the consequences of the judgment. And we see this in verse 8, and then we see it in verses 14 through 16. Let's look at 8 through 10 first. But you, Israel, my servant, 
Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So now if you fit in that category on the judgment day, don't worry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through this. And my righteous right hand is going to take you through this day of judgment. Now, let's look at this a little more closely. Do you see, are you with me so far? So, so, so far, so far. Um, let, let's look at this a little more closely. Because this is a very interesting category that he introduces. Or a very interesting carve-out from the general judgment. And so I want to really drill down into who he's talking about here. Because he uses some key terms that I think are really important. So in the midst of judgment to the coastlands, you, Israel, my servant, um, you're going to be okay. So let's, let's put these words up here that he uses to, to characterize this group of people who will, be, who will make it through the, this coming judgment. Well, he calls them Israel... Um, so, so that's helpful. He, he says, he calls them his servant. And what we really, we really want to, you know, remember that because after we get through this chapter, Isaiah 40 through 55, if you kind of zoom out just a little bit more than 40 through 44, look at 40 through 55, uh, the main, in a sense, kind of the main character of 40 through 55 is going to be someone called the servant. And you know, probably, I don't know, I suppose maybe the most um, well-known passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, um, it, it deals with this servant. Uh, all, all, all we like sheep have gone astray, but, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's, we're going to get there, but, but the servant pops up again and again. So you really want to underscore this. So it's, it's Israel, my servant. And, and then he goes on to talk about him in a, in a little uh, kind of different way. Offspring of Abraham, my friend. So I'll, I'll call this Abraham's seed or offspring. It's, just, it's the same word. Um, Abraham's seed. Um, but, but look at this. It's kind of interesting because in verse 9, so so. You read verse 8 and you think, okay, he's talking to these Jewish people in Jerusalem. And that, that would have been who would have first heard it. When Isaiah is preaching this, that, that those are the people who would have heard it. But what's weird about it is that then the way he describes them seems a little broader than that. I mean, he uses the term Israel, so that, that would make sense. Okay, that's who he's talking to. But look at how he describes them in verse 9. It's, it's almost the same language that he uses in verse 1 when he says to all the coastlands, um, come for judgment. Look at, look at how he refers to them. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So it's, it's the ones who are chosen and 
we could we could just use it just like seed is translated sometimes as offspring. Uh, it's the same word. Chosen is just the same word for elect um, uh, or elected ones. Let's say, um, and and they're from the ends of the earth. He, he's bringing them back. So so you're speaking to Jerusalem. You're you're Isaiah's preaching this sermon to Jerusalem. But when he pictures what's going to happen on the judgment day, it's people that God has chosen and and brought from everywhere. Um, it seems so. So it's from the ends of the earth. Parenthetically or incidentally, uh, this is these these texts in these chapters. One of the reasons why I think. They're referred to in that kind of exalted language that I read earlier, whole Old Testament theology or the book of Romans, you know, uh, is because the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of his apostolic charge, which, as you remember, was the apostle to the Gentiles, what he does when he quote, when he when he kind of gives the biblical rationale for what he's doing is he goes back back to Isaiah 40 through 55 and picks up these verses. And so if you said to Paul, Paul, I understand that you, you know, Christ confronted you and, and, and gave you a special, you know, revelation of himself and called you as an apostle, but, but show me in the Bible where your apostolic ministry is sort of found or prophesied, where you, where, where, biblically speaking, how do you get the warrant for doing what you're doing? beyond just Jesus told me to do it, it, he goes here. So it's interesting because this is, so this is, these are the people who make it through the judgment. Let's look at the description of them again um, in verse 14 through 17. Fear not, um, uh, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the winds shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. So, uh, in other words, again, uh, uh, bringing everyone in for judgment, but... But you're going to not just withstand the judgment, you're actually going to in some way become folded in as, as part of this judgment. In other words, you're going you're gonna to be used by me as part of this whole judgment uh, process, if you will. Now, think, think about the, the ministry of Isaiah just in his time. Um, in Isaiah's time, remember when he was called by God in Isaiah 6? This is recorded for us in Isaiah 6. Um, and we talked a lot about, you know, why didn't that come in Isaiah 1? And why is it right there? But anyway, that's, that's um, we, we, we looked at that. But in Isaiah 6, remember uh, when the Lord calls him, confronts him with his holiness, and says, uh, whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, here am I, send me. And the Lord says, okay, uh, that's the right answer. Now, here's how your ministry is going to look, Isaiah. You're going to go to the people who are going to be, you're, you're going to preach, and you're going to preach 
your heart out to them for your whole life. And they're going to hear you, but they're never going to understand what you're saying. And, and you're going you're gonna to preach these sermons that I'm going to give you. So they're, they're divinely inspired. And so the issue is not your content or your, your, you know, your preaching. But their hearts are going to be hard. Your, your ministry is going to be a ministry of judgment to these people, to this generation. And remember, Jesus actually picks up on that when people ask him, why do you speak in parables? And he grabs that language from Isaiah's call and says, the reason I speak in parables is because the people who are, are, the people who are around me, they're going to hear and they're not going to understand. It's, it's going to condemn them even more. So, so all, all that to say, it's not a surprise in verses 14 through 16 when we realize that the coming judgment of the Lord is not only going to involve its universal, but he's going to save certain people. And those people that he's going to save who could be characterized with, this, with these labels, the people he's going to save are also people that he's going to use as part of the judgment itself. That's not, that's not um, strange or unusual. Because that's how he's using Isaiah. And that's part of the function that Jesus has. And that's part of the function that the, the apostles have in the early church. And they know it. That part of what we're doing is proclaiming good news. And it's some people, it's hardening them and bringing them to judgment. And that doesn't mean God's word has failed. That doesn't mean God's not carrying out his purposes of salvation. As a matter of fact, that's part of how he carries out his purpose of salvation. Although it may not be comfortable to us or particularly the part we would want to play. I mean, Isaiah's, Isaiah's whole ministry is not one that any of us would want. Um, and, and God tells him right at the outset, it's, you're going to be essentially a, a failure. Not, not really, but, but in the sense that people just are not going to respond in repentance and faith. All right. Now, that's sort of phase one of Isaiah 41. That's a lot of, of biblical theology in there. I mean, that's really significant. And it, and it kind of casts into relief even what we do today uh, as God's people and as uh, in, in the ministry of preaching and teaching in the church. But there's something else that God wants to talk about with respect to this coming judgment. And... And while he's judging people, um, the coastlands that everybody's gathered, and he's saving his his elect, um, he also is um, is making a very emphatic statement about the gods that they worshipped as well, about the idols that they worshipped. So, in in just in life, um, you know. This can sound trite, and it can be presented in a way that's trivial. But, but it's really, it is a biblical truth that everybody's a worshiper. Everyone, everyone serves someone else, takes their cues from someone else. There, there's, there's some, something drives everyone. Uh, nobody's exempt from that. We all have, uh, w- this is whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have... 
you have things that you aspire to. You have people that you uh, that you look up to. You 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 have uh, something that you trust in that you're counting on that gives you some framework of meaning and purpose and 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 there's kind of a goal that you're, you 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 have in mind or a telos. Everybody has a kind of working eschatology. In other words, we have all these theological categories just embedded in us. And the question is, you know, are we filling them in with things that are idols? Or are we filling them in with, with things that are true, that, that are from the true and living God? Uh, John Calvin said our, our hearts are a factory of idols. It's like you imagine in your heart, there's just, they're just hammering out idols all the time. You know, you move from one to the other. You think you you think you uh, you move past one thing, and you realize pretty quickly if you're observant, you're you're reading the Bible. Uh, it's just it's just a constant struggle. Um, and 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 they were literally uh, worshiping um, idols, as we know in that day. And 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 look at what the Lord says against them on the day of judgment. Um. Oh, by, by, by the way, right, right before we get to the idols, I want, I want to read verse 20, because this is what happens, again, think about the New Testament um, when it talks about judgment. What happens at the end when everybody's brought in for judgment by Jesus Christ, who's the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead? Um, what happens at the end of it all is just this, verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider Understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. In other words, this is all just showcases God's glory. All right, let's go to the idols. Let me begin in verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now, what's the Lord saying? Well, he's saying that um, to these idols, look, why don't you just, why don't you just do a few of the things that I'm doing. Why don't you, for, for instance, explain to us why history has transpired the way it has. Why it's all worked out um, in, in, in the way that brings us to this point. Or, better yet, why don't you tell us what's going to happen next? And, and explain why that's going to happen next. And, and, and give us all the lessons we're supposed to learn from that. And, and the point is that they cannot do it. Um, they're unable either to give meaning to history um, or to certainly give any kind of prophetic word about the future. Now, there's a sense in which what God's saying about idols, this is profound. When you think about the things that we worship or the things that we are drawn to or the things that our hearts are continually uh, manufacturing, um, those things, or people, or, or, or whatever they might be, are, are actually unable, at the end of the day, 
to give any kind of real framework for meaning, uh, by which I by which I mean uh, they they can't explain how we're here, and, and they don't have any clear idea of what's next. Now, they may claim to have a clear idea of what's next, and they may give some kind of explanation for why we're here, but, but at, our, at our deepest moments of reflection, we know that it's not a full explanation. It's a kind of partial explanation. It's a, it's a, it's a self-serving one. It doesn't actually take everything into account. It, it doesn't, they can't explain reality. And they certainly can't predict or control reality in the future. And, and then he goes on to say, not only that, not only can they, can they not give you a framework for the sort of timeline of, of your life or of the universe as a whole, but, um, but they can't do anything. They, they don't actually accomplish anything. And the image that's often used in the prophets, because these idols were actual you know, statues, that they bowed down to, the, the imagery is, um, you know, that you look at the statue and, and you carved it, or someone else, or you bought it from someone who carved it, but now you're looking at it as if it has any power to do anything. And the whole point of the prophetic message with respect to idols, not the, not the entirety of their message, but, but one of the main points is that they cannot do anything. They're actually totally impotent. They have no... They have no power over your life. And so that's what he's saying to the idols on that day as well. He reserves, God reserves special contempt and special judgment for those people or figures or ideas that, that took the place of him in the worship of human beings. If you think about in the book of Revelation and the way in which God executes ultimately judgment and justice on the whole earth, but there is special, he's kind of taking special aim and has special judgment against these, these figures who are outlined, the, the, uh, the, the, the Babylon or, or the, the woman of Babylon or, uh, or these beasts that come out, out, out of the sea. Now, we, we don't have to, you know, figure out at this point what, what all those imageries refer, refer to. That's a, that's a different class. But um, it's just to say that there is special, there's special contempt, special judgment reserved for, for these idols. And then he specifically deals with their situation. And he does, by the way, explain the past, explain the future, and and, and show how he's active. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. So see, what the Lord's doing is he's sort of answering the challenge that he gave to the idols. Can you explain why this has happened? You can't. Can you explain what's going to happen next? You can't. But I will. Here you go. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers and uh, as on mortar, uh, uh, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right? None who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one among these, there's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. So, 
what the Lord says is, you want, you want an explanation for your life, for how we got to this point, for what I'm doing, for what I'm going to do? Um, I'll give it to you. But you're not going to find it by looking to them. And you see, this is, this is very, um, I think there's, there's a pastoral or psychological uh, profundity to this because um, see, see what happens when when we get caught up in the circumstances of life when we um, when we're pressed when when we're when we're stressed when we uh, when there's all kinds of things going on is is we, we, we sort of are looking to an anchor we want to grab on to something we want to grab on to something that kind of gives us some Solidity, or maybe even just relief, in the midst of that, um, and 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 what that often leads to, and this is what it led to, sadly, among the people of Jerusalem. What it often leads to is, basically, we grab onto something that's sinful, uh, for some kind of relief, for some kind of temporary respite, for some some kind of. Uh, um, Framework, uh, uh, something, something solid to grab a hold of. But, but the thing is, when, when we do that, and we grab a hold of something that's not God and His Word, um, what we realize is just what the Lord says. That what we've grabbed a hold of actually doesn't deliver, can't deliver, and, and it, 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 leaves us, it leaves us with less than nothing. And so, if you're if you're facing a crisis, or even if you're not, if you're just kind of going through the normal stuff of life, which, which has its own difficulties and complexities, um, there's, there's only one place to go for something solid, for something that will give you ultimate rest and satisfaction and fulfillment, uh, that will actually give you answers um, and 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 won't just be like sort of dust in your hands with nothing left at the end. And that's and that's that's what happens. You see, you grab onto these sinful things, and 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 it's just like verse twenty-eight. When I look, there's no one among these. There's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. If you think that you're Life will have meaning and purpose that you'll you'll have some level of satisfaction, or that things will make sense, or that you'll you know whatever that, that, that you'll have some solidity um, rooted in anything other than God and His Word. What you will find at the end, and you may move from one idol to the next. You may choose this idol for two years and this idol for five years. But at the end, you're going to find the same thing each time, which is verse 29. They are all a delusion, and their works are nothing. They can't bring you good. They can't bring shape to your life. They, they leave you totally empty, and if you will, dry at the end. And, 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 it's, and then he, he, he gives this kind of juxtaposition at the end of 29, because... He says the gods don't bring you anything. These these false gods don't bring you anything. They're just delusion. But but then the images that are made to represent them are just I mean they're metal, but they 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 might as well just be wind. 
I mean, it's nothing. You can't grab a hold of it. it, it it's gone. It's it's ephemeral. It's totally um, it, it, it's it's totally empty. Um, now let me just pause there for one second. So I like I know I know we lose choir members very soon, and so so I but I have one more point to make. But but I want to just pause to make sure that that big picture of this chapter and the big message of it's kind of connecting. So any questions, comments, thoughts, ideas, pushback, anything like that? Okay. Then let me make let me make one more point. Um, and this is sort of leads to the transition between 41 and 42. If you go back to these verses that I represented kind of up on the board, verses 8 through 10, I mentioned this when we went through it, one of the terms that's used for the people, plural, who are saved in the coming judgment, one of the descriptors or labels that's pinned on them is this, servant. And this is, again, by all... um, Appearances in chapter 41, this is a collective. This is a group of people, right? These are Abraham's seed, chosen, but it's, it's a group. And they're from the ends of the earth. So this, is, this appears to be a group or a collective. In other words, it's people, plural. Uh, now, now, Keep that in mind because we're going into 42 where I've said already, now the main character is going to be this servant. And the question is, who is this servant who's being represented or, 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 or shown forth in these next chapters? I mean, just look at verse 1 of, of chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And what we're going to need to explore, among other things, in these servant songs, which begin in 42, in these so-called servant songs, is we're going to need to explore the way in which Isaiah can almost seemingly toggle back and forth between speaking of the servant as a a single, as a man, as one person, him, and speaking of the servant as people, as a a kind of collective. Now, I'm going to just, that's just sort of a lead-in to one of the questions we need to answer, but I want to give you a parallel passage where we see the same thing happen. Turn to the book of Daniel, if you would. And uh, turn to to Daniel 7. We're not going to be able to go through the whole thing. It's a vision. Daniel interprets the vision. Um, And here's uh, the end of the interpretation, the, the end of the whole unfolding that we get in Daniel 7. And and by the way, you'll recognize this. It's in verses 13 and 14 because it's picked up over and over again to talk about the return of Christ. 
in the New Testament. This is, this is a very famous passage, and it gives you a term that Jesus uses. Um, not, it's not the term he uses the most to describe himself, but it's one of the most, this term son of man. It comes from Daniel 7. All right, here we go. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So we're talking about a single individual. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And now now then Daniel explains this at the end of the chapter. And, And look at what he says in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given. Now see here, earlier in Daniel 7, it's given to an individual, the son of man. But here in verse 27, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now all this to say, all this to say, Isaiah is not unique in what he does here. and It actually has real significance for our understanding of salvation in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, um, one uh, theologian puts it this way. Union with Christ is the, the source from which all the other benefits of salvation flow, or the fountain, you might say, from all uh, which all the other benefits of salvation flow. Union with Christ is, in other words, at kind of the center of the wheel And if you're talking about salvation as it's revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, where you have to start, the center of the wheel, you can talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification, and election, and all these things, but the the kind of the center of it, what it it all, it gets, how it all interconnects is, is that we are united to Jesus Christ, which is why Paul can say to Christians, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or he can reflect on his own testimony and say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, and, and you see, what we're going to get in Isaiah in these servant psalms. Uh, see you later, Emma. I, I wanted to end before you get, had to leave, but oh, sorry about that. Um, what we're going to see in these servant songs, what we see in Daniel 7, is that by use of this term servant, um, see us here, the, uh, we, we see that same theology. That the, the servant, the him, who is at the center of it, and we're going to see him, uh, I, you know, Isaiah 53, um, is, is also identified with his people, such that the people who make it through the judgment are the servant. And we're going to see why they make it through. It's because of the servant. And because he's what he's done for them. And then how they are united to him. Um, so that's where we're going. Sort of theologically. But, um, but, but 41 lays out these important terms for us. Alright, let me pray. Because we're out of time. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given to us. Uh, we, are, we really are conscious of the fact that we're barely even scratching the surface of your word. And yet we thank you for it, and thank you for giving us this time to to even do that. And we pray that as we continue with this day, that we would reflect on these things, meditate on them, and be changed by you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.